this actually does happen a lot. Um, so like after programs, people will come up to me like, this would be really, really great thing for my kid to get into. They're still in college. What should they do? Or, you know, some people are retired, but are national park service rangers now. And I think that that's a really good option too. A lot of teachers, especially when they retire, they become seasonal rangers. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. I am here with Riley today. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Really good. Really good. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania today. Where Where in the world are you? I am in Alaska in Denali National Park. Wonderful. Is it warmer and, there? It's 30 degrees here, which is pretty warm for February. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to guess it's warmer here. It was <laughs> kind of uh, hot in the car. Let me see exactly. It's 36. So mm. you got six degrees on you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it wasn't as hot as I remember. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you are a national park ranger, am I right? I am. Yep. Wonderful. And this is my first discussion with a park ranger. I've embarrassingly only been to the Grand Canyon and Arches, and maybe a couple others that I don't exactly remember. But they. I bet you've been to more than you think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They left, that was a couple years ago, and they left an impression on me. And I was actually just talking to someone the other day about really needing to get a trip to like as many as I can get to. So that's on, that's coming up. They're definitely incredible. I love it. What is a day like as a national park ranger? So I'm what they call an interpretive park ranger. So if you go to a national park and you go to the visitor center and there's people at the desk that are helping you plan your trip, I do some of that. Um, sometimes I'm taking fees. If you enter a park, some, some of them charge a fee, but not all of them. Um, so sometimes I do that as well, but sometimes different national parks will hire people they call visitor use assistants. And that's all that they do is food collection. Um, and sometimes if you go to like, let's say you're seeing one of the national park campgrounds, they have an amphitheater. And a ranger comes and they give a program. So interpretive rangers do that as well. So here in Denali, we have campground programs. We also do programs at the sled dog kennel here. And we take visitors out off trail hiking for an entire day. We call those discovery hikes. Um, And we have a lot of other guided hikes as well that are on trail um, and things like that. So across national parks, if you've ever had a park ranger take a group of people and talk to you about that park and why that park is important and why it's protected. That's what an interpretive ranger does. And what is the usual way of getting into those groups? Like for somebody that wants sort of that guided experience to the park. So usually if you, if you show up to a national park, most parks will advertise their programs in some way. Um, Maybe it's a sandwich board or like a whiteboard that's out front. Um, Sometimes you have to go to the front desk and talk to the, park rangers and just ask what sort of programs are going on that day and they'll be able to have a list. Um, A lot of parks also have publications that they 
issue every summer and there'll be a list there. But also you can go online while you're planning your trip and every national park website has a calendar. And if you click on that calendar, the program should be in there too. Some of them require you to sign up. Um, it just depends on the park and the program, but some of them we take as many people as want to come. Could you take us through one of your favorites of these tours? Yeah. Um, my favorite in Denali is probably the sled dog program because you don't get that experience in any other national park. It's the only one with a working sled dog kennel. So it's completely different from any other national park that I've worked at. And it's a completely unique visitor experience. So they'll come to the kennel, they get to interact with some of the dogs and then we get them all into the stands and I do a little introduction and then the dogs will run and pull a cart with one of the kennels rangers on the back in a, in a small circle. And then I talk about why we use sled dogs and the history of sled dogs in the park and why they're so important here. How long is that tour usually? The program itself is 30 minutes. For that one. If I go on that tour, I'm on the, the sled and I've got... No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, I'm not on sled. No, that would be super fun, but I don't even get to ride the sled. It's the specific rangers that we have here in the park that work in the kennel. So every single day they go to the kennel and they work with the dogs. They take care of the dogs and they're the ones that ride in the sled. Or in, in the summer, it's actually a cart with wheels since we don't have any snow. The sled isn't really practical. I see. So you just, you take them to the kennel? You yeah, they can out. get there. Um, there's a bus actually from the visitor center that'll take you to the kennel. They're only two miles apart. And then they get to walk around the kennel and see all the dogs. And we have some dogs, usually three or four that are out that you can pet and interact with, take pictures with. And then the demonstration part starts at a certain time. So you leave the dog yard and you go and you sit in the stands or stand in the stands and you watch the ranger give that program. Very cool. Being in Alaska, what are the different seasons like as a park ranger up there? They're, they're pretty different, but in terms of seasonal park ranger life, it's pretty much the same. So seasonal park rangers mostly only work in the summer since that's when our highest visitation levels are. But that depends on national parks too. I was just in the Everglades and their big seasonal workforce comes in the winter because that's the most common time to visit Florida. But in Alaska, it's definitely summer. So we typically work early to mid-April to mid to late September. And then our season ends and it's winter already by that point um, since we're so far north. And every park ranger sort of does something different in the winter. You know, some people that work in Denali in the summer might go to Everglades in the winter and continue to work seasonally, but do it throughout the year. And then there's me and I just travel in my winter or I've been volunteering here recently. So I work for the resources division of the park and the scientists that work here. And I've been working for the park entomologist and one of the museum curators as well as our social scientists getting some projects done. So it really just depends on the ranger and, and what they want to do. What's the project like you're working with the entomologist on? So she collected over this previous summer in all eight big national parks in Alaska. She went out and collected insects, pollinating insects with what we call an insect vacuum, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, so it sucks the insects up and really the only way to identify insects, unfortunately, is under a microscope. And so you sadly have to kill them in order to do that. And so 
she has all these insects in these vials and I've been separating them into their orders. So it's groups of like mosquitoes and flies and bees and wasps, spiders, moths, that sort of a thing. Uh, and then we're actually pinning them. So like literally putting a pin through the insect or perhaps gluing it to a very small sheet of paper, depending on the size of the insect. And then they will be brought to the University of Alaska and put into their museum collection. How are the Alaskan bees faring compared to like what's going on with the rest of the world's bees? I think it's pretty typical. I actually, I see them very, very rarely here in Denali. And on one of my discovery hikes last summer, someone asked me what pollinates all of our flowers because we don't have bees. And I said, well, we do have bees. So I don't think people understand that, that they do exist this far north. And we have lots of species of bees. And the entomologist here, Jessica Rickin, has actually discovered at least one new species since she's been working here in the park. Um, so while the population may be lowering, um, they are still here and they're still pollinating and still working really hard. That's really cool. She just found a totally new species up there. <laughs> yeah. So when you get them under that microscope, you can see those little tiny differences that don't stand out if you just view it with a naked eye while it's flying around. You know, you have to really look at the the colors on the back of it and all sorts of other characteristics that they have. On a recent episode, my friend Carl was talking about counting the hairs on some sort of sea, tiny sea creature. Mm. Do you do you count the hairs on the bees at all? Thankfully, I don't have to. I think that would take a very long time. But we do, like I said, we have to look at the colors in order to identify the different species. So I think you think of a bumblebee and you think it's just yellow and black and that's it. It's simple. But a lot of them actually have orange or white stripes as well. And where those stripes are help you identify it. Where did you begin with your park ranger journey? Was it something that you grow up as a kid kind of thinking about and wanting to do? Or was it, did it come on like later down the road? It came up later and I make fun of myself for that because I definitely grew up in a family that enjoyed camping and enjoyed hiking. And I grew up in Florida, so we did a lot of kayaking and stuff as well. So I was definitely an outdoorsy kid and a lot of like our spring break trips would be camping trips or summer road trips we would take to national parks. And it actually wasn't until the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college that I realized I could work in a national park. It just had never occurred to me before that moment, even though I'd been to so many, it wasn't until 2011 that I realized, oh, hey, people work here. I could work here. Yeah, that that moment where, you know, sort of people are around you and then you're like, wait a second, these are these are real people. Like, I could do these awesome jobs too. That's exactly what it was like. I We were in Great Smoky Mountains National, National Park when I had this epiphany. And I remember it very, very clearly. We were on a hike. And my I said to, to my mom about how cool it would be to work in a place like that. And she just looked at me and was like, you, you know people work here, right? <laughs> it just dawned on me right in that moment. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, they do. I've had a few people tell me, usually it comes with uh, whitewater tour guides. You know, as a kid, they went on a trip and they're they're just thinking like, oh, these these people are amazing. They're like the coolest people in the world. And I always wonder if like the guide that got them into whitewater rafting, if they ever interacted with them later, 
and maybe didn't know it. Yeah. That's funny you bring up whitewater rafting too, because during that same trip to the Smokies, we did a whitewater tour. And I remember the guide and he worked seasonally. So he went to the Smokies in the summers, but then in the winters went down to Big Bend National Park in Texas and did whitewater rafting guiding there. So I think that was probably part of the epiphany that I was having as well was, oh, hey, this is someone that makes a seasonal lifestyle kind of work. And it was before I had really like researched being a park ranger because you know, just, I had just thought that people work there. And so I didn't even understand that seasonal lifestyle is pretty much the most common type of park ranger. It's actually really difficult to find a permanent year-round position in the National Park Service. But I think I got comfort knowing that they make it work. And I thought it sounded really awesome, too, that you get to live in two different places and experience two different places. What did that process look like when you did start researching the the job options? It started with internships. And since I was still in college, that was pretty much as as dedicated as I was willing to be. Um, When I started, I didn't know I wanted to be like an interpretive park ranger. So I actually, my first internship was in Oklahoma and I was a restoration intern and they have an air force base in Oklahoma city that I worked at as a civilian and there's a network of trails there. So we were responsible for maintaining those trails, but also they had different areas at the refuge or at the air force base where they had a habitat for Texas horned lizards. And so we would also go there and put GPS trackers on these lizards and kind of see how they were adapting to this habitat that they had been placed in. And then we would go to areas surrounding the base to see if we could find any lizards there as well. What was hunting the lizards like? <laughs> Just an experience for sure. Um, so you you put little, they're kind of like little tiny backpacks that you put on their back and it's this little GPS tracker. But then what you have in your hand is something that we call a, a Trimble GPS device, which is like a really large, kind of looks like an ancient cell phone. And it's bright yellow. And then attached to that, or uh, actually it was the other intern that I was with at the time, would be holding this like massive kind of um, radar. It kind of looks like it looks like a satellite almost, but like a very miniature version. Whereas this is a hunk of metal with um, sort of legs sticking off of it, kind of like an antenna. And so you hold that up in the air while you're walking around with this trimble. And when you get closer to the GPS tracker, it beeps really, really loud. And the closer you get, the beeps are also closer together. So it'll start out really slow and really far apart. And then the closer you get, really, really fast. And that's how you know that the lizard is nearby. And then you have to find it. And sometimes to cool off, they would bury themselves underground. And so that was tricky. Um, Sometimes they would hide under these trees that had really, really thick branches that we'd have to go through and try to find. So I came out with scratches all over myself and probably ticks and sugars and everything. So it was quite the experience. But once you found them, it was really fun. Yeah, it sounds like an adult scavenger hunt. And you're looking at these <laughs> <Kind of> like, <laughs> reptiles wearing backpacks. Yeah, it's like a really intense geocaching where your target moves. <laughs> and can bury itself and hide and run. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Luckily, the little backpacks, they have an antenna on them. And so sometimes the antenna would stick out of the sand and that's how you'd find them. 
just grab them by their antenna. <laughs> you don't grab them by the antenna, but you'd see the antenna sticking out. And so you'd know, okay, that's where it is. And then you could kind of dig around it in order to get a hold of it. Gotcha. That sounds like a blast, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty entertaining. Um, and I definitely had a, a love for wildlife growing up. And I did like that portion of the job, but the restoration work on the trails wasn't my favorite. It was the summer after that that I went to Alaska for the first time and I had an internship there doing interpretation and that was at Wrangell St. Elias National Park which is the largest in the country and we get very very few visitors there and most people unless you're a national park fanatic you've never even heard of it but it's massive and it was an amazing experience and that's when I really fell in love with Alaska and knew that I wanted to live here and now here I am. Was there a specific park or was there a specific person or persons that finally it clicked and you were like, that's exactly what I want to do? Not really, because even honestly, when I was at Wrangell St. Elias doing interpretive programs, I didn't really love it. And my favorite part about that internship was actually my supervisor would create opportunities for me to meet with the other people in the park when like scientists and stuff. So I went out with with the fisheries biologist to a lake and did measurements with him. I went to the local airport once and did dispatch for them for a day. And I went out with the the botanists and was studying fireweed with them. And so she was able to get me these other experiences so that I could really narrow down what I wanted to do. And all of them were fascinating especially for an outdoors person and just getting out into the park was so much fun and I think I mean we only had like three different programs that we delivered and the front desk was so slow you know you'd get maybe a hundred people a day coming into the visitor center and so I think it definitely took a lot longer for me to realize what it was that I wanted to do you know beyond that moment I just knew I wanted to work in the national park and work for the national park service that's what I learned from that internship but I don't think I knew yet that interpretation was sort of my calling. What was it that pushed you into that? I think it was just, I had experience in interpretation. And so that's the first job that I got when I graduated college. So I did another internship and this one was in Delaware for state parks. And I was working for the Delaware Children and Nature Coalition, as well as the state parks system there and trying to get a lot of programs for kids and that kind of helped it develop as well. And then when that internship was over, they hired me and I became the interpretive specialist for the state park system. And so I planned programs that they would have at multiple state parks. So every park had their own interpretive program manager who manages the interpretive programs that are available at that site. And they have their own staff members who deliver them. But if there was a program or an event that took place across multiple parks in the state, then I would manage those. And I think that's when I really got back into interpretation. And I started assisting with the summer training when all the interpreter seasonals would arrive. And I think that that really got me back into it too. And then finally, my last couple of months there before I moved to the National Park Service, they had the National Association for Interpretation course available where you become a certified interpretive guide. I think that learning all of sort of the back end of it 
and all of the logistics that go into delivering a program in that very formal way, that really got me back to be interested in it. In that role, what are what are some of your favorite parts of it? Like the the tasks that the job includes. Which ones are your favorite to jump into and get, finish? Well, in Delaware, I my favorite was probably what we call the Venture Outdoors Fest, which when I was originally tasked with planning this event, I was kind of upset because I was just an intern and I didn't know what I was doing and I felt really overwhelmed. But then it became one of my favorite things to do. And what we did is we picked a different state park every year and we would invite all these people and sell all these tickets and people would come and they would just do all of the outdoor activities that are available at those different parks. And it would raise a lot of awareness for those parks and bring a lot of people there that didn't know that these parks existed and get them into new activities too. You would have people come in and teach yoga classes or uh, we even had the dogfish brewery come in and they would do tasting sessions. And so it was a good opportunity to really understand the community of Delaware. It's such a small state and everyone really does know each other there. Um, and so just bringing it all together was, was really, really fun and raising awareness that these state parks exist and this is what you can do in them was really, really cool. What are some of the biggest straws in the, the Delaware state parks? My favorite ones were always the ones where I could paddle. And I think that just goes back to my Floridian days. So there's three different, they're actually giant lakes, but they call them ponds. And so there's Lums Pond and Killens Pond and Trap Pond. And those are always my favorite ones to go to. Lums Pond is probably the most diverse because they also have this giant zipline course there. And that's pretty popular now. Now that you're in the system, and I'm sure you get when you're doing your tours, you'll get people at the end that are like, oh, I, you know, I'd love to work here and say all that. And it's kind of like in the moment. But if you had somebody email you and they're like, I seriously want to work in the system or be in national parks more often. So I think working there would be the best. What what are some of the things that you would push them towards? This actually does happen a lot. Um, so like after programs, people will come up to me like, this would be really, really great thing for my kid to get into. They're still in college. What should they do? Or, you know, some people are retired that are National Park Service Rangers now. And I think that that's a really good option too. A lot of teachers, especially when they retire, they become seasonal rangers. And I do get a lot of emails. And a lot of that is why I started the blog that I have, Riley's Rogues, is because I wanted to reach out and let people know that this is a feasible option and that it's a really fun option. And so when people email me, it's usually college students and they're looking for guidance. And I definitely push them towards internships because that's how I got started. And I think it's important to know that your internship doesn't have to be in a national park for you to get that experience. Because I I had one internship at a national park, but other than that, it was obviously a really diverse experience. And I went from working in an Air Force base to a national park in Alaska to a variety of state parks in a tiny state of Delaware that most people have never heard of, and then finally transitioned into the National Park Service. So your, your line doesn't have to be this like logical one that you might think of. It can be all over the place and you can still get there. And the journey is really, really fun. So doing those internships, the Student Conservation Association is a big one. All of my internships were through them. They host national park internships, but also all sorts of different things like state parks or if you want to be a civilian intern on a Air Force base, 
And another common one that we have is called geoscientists in parks or GIP. And they focus more on the resources element of things. So working for the scientists in the different national parks rather than interpretation, which if you're interested in that or education, I think the SCA is a better option. And then from there, it just is all applying on USA jobs, which can be its own headache, but it's just like applying for any other job where you put up your resume and you answer a questionnaire and you hope that you get a phone call. And where, where can people find those jobs and apply? This is usajobs.gov is where the National Park Service and all other federal jobs are posted. So you can also be an interpreter for the Fish and Wildlife Service or the Bureau of Land Management. And what if the, the person that emailed you or was interested was sort of close or at the, like, say, retirement age? I think it's just the same thing. You know, a lot of people that have had these careers, they have the experience that they need to be a park ranger and they just might not know it. Like if you've ever done customer service, you can be a park ranger. If you've ever, you know, done an experiment, you can be a park ranger. And there's so many different types of park rangers. Like here in Denali, you've got kennels, park rangers. And all that you need to work in the kennel is experience with animals. They obviously prefer that it be dogs and sled dogs. But we get a lot of interns that have worked in zoos before and then they come here and they can work in the kennel. Or uh, we also have law enforcement park rangers or administrative park rangers and there's maintenance park rangers and all sorts of different things. And so, you know, some more unique ones to different parks might be climbing rangers in places like Mount Rainier or Rocky Mountain. We have people that do like cave scientists. I worked at Jewel Cave for a little bit and there's also places like Carlsbad Caverns or uh, Oregon Cave is a national monument too. So if you're interested in sort of the underground world, there's opportunities for that. So there's really, really unique things out there that you you might not think that your experience, whatever that might be, ties into it. But I bet you can find a national park that caters to that. Yeah, I'm now I'm very interested in being a cave tour or a cave <laughs> ranger in Oregon. It was a lot of fun. So I, I worked at Jewel Cave in South Dakota. And it's one of the largest cave systems in the world. And it's still being explored. So they, they estimate they've only found about 90 or about 5%. So there's 95% that's left to be found underground somewhere. So they have cave explorers that go in and they're literally the first people that have ever set foot in a place. And they're probably the last people that will ever set foot in that place unless it's a passage that leads to something new. So it's a really, really exciting opportunity beyond even just being a park ranger or a tour guide. If you live in Custer, South Dakota, you can be a cave explorer. Wow. Or if you're willing to go to South Dakota. Yeah. In order to do some of those really big trips, you do have to have a lot of experience caving. And it's, it's hard. Like it sounds really fun and it sounds really appealing, but you know, you spend four days in the dark underground. So it's quite difficult and it's not for the faint of heart. So you have to do a lot of training and a lot of other trips before you work yourself up to something like that. Yeah, it's it sounds awesome until you're inch by inch going through this tube and there's, you know, a millimeter of water at the bottom. So you're wet as well. Yeah, sometimes. Jewel Cave is pretty dry, but that was one of the fascinating things within the last you know, three or four years, they found lakes that they never knew existed down there. So that was pretty exciting too. And Wind Cave is just down the street too. And it's another, one of the largest ones in the entire world. And it's got its own type of formation that 
it's seen in other caves, but not to the extent that it's seen in Wind Cave. It's called boxwork. And it really just looks like a checkerboard pattern on the wall, but it's really, really cool. Okay. What other awesome, amazing things am I missing out on? Because there's there's caves in South Dakota that they they haven't seen 95% of it and I had no clue. So what, what other things <laughs> in national parks around the country are people missing that are amazing? Oh, I'm sure that, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Like that's, what's so amazing about these places is I think that the most important question to ask when you go to a national park is why that national park was created. So if you take Denali, for example, you probably come here and you're like, wow, this place is beautiful. And that's why it's a national park is because it's really pretty and somebody wanted to keep it that way. But in reality, it was actually preserved because the dull sheep, which if you picture like a bighorn sheep, but white, we have dull sheep here and they were on the verge of extinction because they were being overhunted. And that's why this park was created was actually to protect the dull sheep and the other wildlife that are here. And it's just a bonus that it's really beautiful. How are they doing now? They're doing great. They have, we have over a thousand in the park. Do you know why Big Bend in Texas was created? I've actually never been to Big Bend. And I would love to know. So I don't know much about that park, unfortunately. Okay. I wondered just um, a couple episodes, Carl uh, Kaler said that he was just blown away when he went. And he was just really surprised because he had never heard about it before. Yeah, it's definitely next on my list. But when I, I mentioned earlier, I was just in Everglades National Park recently. And the naturalist there who was, I was on the um, Shark Valley tram tour. And she was talking about how, you know, you look at the Everglades and it's not your typical national park in that it doesn't have that like really grand scenery. It's beautiful in its own way. But it's not like when you look at Grand Teton or you look at Yellowstone or you look at Yosemite, and you immediately know this place is gorgeous and that's why it's a national park. Everglades was actually protected because it needed to be conserved because the area around it depends so heavily on it and because the animals there depend so heavily on it. So it was the very first national park that was created in order to conserve what's there and to preserve what is there for the benefit of the ecosystem. Just like Denali was the first national park that was preserved specifically to protect wildlife. What's like, the most important or say the maybe the thing that people outside of national parks can do or you would try to get them to do to help the national park system? I think there's a couple of things. Um, voting is a really big one. So just exercising your right to vote. And if national parks are something that you care about, then vote for the people that will help the national parks as well. And another thing is there's a lot of nonprofits out there that benefit the National Park Service, and two of the biggest ones are the National Park Foundation and the National Park Conservation Association. So donating to those will be a big, big help. And um, just visiting national parks too, they're definitely overvisited and overloved. But I think that that's why we continue to upkeep them and continue to create new ones every year, is because we know but there's a demand for them and that people want to come to these places, whether it's to experience the beautiful scenery or to learn more about the history of this country or maybe specific people that made a difference in this country. You know, national parks protect a variety of things. And so just to continue to foster that love for these places is really, really important. So you're 
you're an interpretive park ranger now. What, what does your future look like or what, what are you looking forward to in your career? It's sort of a never ending question of a park ranger is what does your future look like? Um, right. right now? I mean, I don't, there's no end in sight for my seasonal career. If I were to have the opportunity to take a permanent year round position in a national park, I would definitely consider it. But for now, working seasonally in Alaska is where I want to be. And I think we'll just see where the universe sort of takes me next. And we'll see what comes up on usajobs.gov and what I apply for next. I, I want to ask you like, uh, what are your, most favorite national parks or some question like that that gives it a superlative but i know that's that's maybe not how you look at it i guess is that right and it's impossible right like they're all completely different and so it's really really hard to narrow them all down that way and i mean denali is my favorite national park right now but i think a lot of that is that i've worked here now for four years and lived here for four years. And so it's just become my home. And I think that's why it's probably my favorite, but I don't think I've ever been to a national park and been so severely disappointed that like, I've never been to a park and thought, why is this a national park? This shouldn't exist. This, this is not important to America's history and it's not pretty. Like <laughs> That's never <laughs> happened. And so national parks, they're all unique and they all protect something different. And that's what makes them so special. And that's why it's really hard to narrow down a favorite, but I'm definitely a person that is very into nature and the outdoors and like backpacking, camping, hiking, paddling, things like that. And so the parks that cater to those desires are definitely higher on my list, but it's not that I don't value like the national historic sites or the national historical parks that are out there. I think Harper's Ferry is one of my favorite places to go. And it's probably because even though it's a national historic site, it's beautiful. And there's a lot of hikes that you can go on there, including the Appalachian trail. And so that's sort of where I usually strive for. And that's where I usually lean is those national parks that have a lot of outdoor recreation opportunities. Okay. What's the weirdest national park? The weirdest one. That's difficult. There's a lot of like oddballs out there. Like I went to golden spike, National Historic Site, which is in Utah, and it's where the the railroads met when they were constructing the cross country railroad system. But the weirdest thing about it is that it's called Golden Spike National Historic Site, and it's where the Golden Spike was placed to connect the railroads. But the Golden Spike itself is on a is in a museum somewhere in California. So that was pretty pretty weird <laughs> to arrive at a place and its namesake item doesn't live there. It's um, hundreds of miles away. Right. <laughs> Obviously still an important place to go, but it was also kind of like, oh, the Golden Spike's not here. Okay. Um, and then what are some other like weird ones? It's a difficult question. Um, I've never been to it, but there's Carl Sandburg's home in North Carolina. He was a poet and he had a farm. So if you go there, it's another one of those like oddball park ranger jobs too. There are park rangers where there's their whole job is to take care of goats at this farm in North Carolina. That might be another like weird one, not because of what the park is, but because of what the job is. You're just a goat steward. Right. <laughs> not just awesome. a goat steward. I'm sorry. It's really hard work, <laughs> but 
Right. Yeah. You're not just a goat <laughs> steward, but yeah, you, know. you do a lot. They're probably, honestly, they're probably interpretive rangers. I don't know a lot about it, but I bet that they work the visitor center desk and do programs and have to take care of goats. So it's just different. Um, and those are the fun ones for me, the ones that are different. And it's just, it's visiting them is when you learn all those little idiosyncrasies that make them different. Like no one would know that Jewel Cave was the third largest cave on earth if they didn't go to it. What are your thoughts on the, the seasonal lifestyle? I mean, you've, you've been doing it for a while. Are you, do you sort of evangelize for it at all? It definitely has its pluses and minuses. I do love working in the summer and definitely by the end of the summer, I do get a little bit burned out. And so it's nice to have a break, but at the same time in winter, you know, you can get cabin fever and you just want to get out. And that's why I travel so much, but you know, it's difficult to travel in the winter because you have to make sure that the funding is there. And so you have to be really frugal over the summer so that you know that you can support yourself over the winter if you know that you're not going to have a job. I kind of live in a constant paranoia that I don't have health insurance. And so something really drastically awful is going to happen to me and I'm going to become ill and I'm not going to be able to afford to pay for it. But that is really, really extreme and probably just my internal anxiety and not a common thing amongst all seasonal workers. Well, I think that's just part of being an American. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it, it allows me to go home, which is really, really nice. I live 4,000 4, miles away from where I grew up and my parents are still in Florida. And so it's nice to be able to go and visit them in the winters. And that's like with the holiday season. And so I can go home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. So it, it definitely has its perks. But, you know, one of the best times to travel for somebody with wanderlust as thick as mine is in the summer and that's when I can't go anywhere because that's when I'm working. So that's a struggle in and of itself too. Yeah. I, I know that game. I work in Alaska in the summer and yeah, it's been eight or eight or nine years since I've, since I've been outside Alaska during the summer. So there's things that I used to do in the summer that like uh, there's a game convention in Ohio. I used to go to every year and it's like, man, I haven't been in nine years. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, like if I want to do anything in the summer, it's in Alaska. And that's definitely not a negative because Alaska is an amazing place and it's huge. So there's always something new for me to go see. I haven't been to all the national parks up here yet. So that's a big goal of mine before I move away and don't live here anymore, if that ever happens. Um, So there's definitely some more for me to see up here, but it's also hard to not be able to go other places that you might want to go in the summer. And the other complication with Alaska is it's so far from everything else. And so even if I did get like a four day weekend or a five day weekend, I'm going to spend two of those days just traveling to wherever I'm going. So that's a really big consideration that I always have to make too. Have you brought anyone into being a seasonal? I'd like to think so. We talked about how many people have emailed me in the past. So I hope that they do well and that they make it and become park rangers. Um, and we, I've interacted with a lot of interns through my park service career that have been jumped from intern to park ranger and mentoring them has been really fun. Is there anything I didn't ask about that I should? I don't think so. This is really fun to, to think about national parks in a sort of different way. No one's ever asked me what the weirdest one was before. I'm sure they're all weird <laughs> in some way or another. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, I mean, I can imagine it's sort of like... Um, like people, right? There's there's the ones like Yellowstone or uh, Grand Tetons that, you know, it's like, oh, it's not weird. It's the coolest. It's, you know, it's the most beautiful. There's nothing weird about that. You yeah. Know, it sort of, it sort of is 
what everyone thinks of. But then, like you said, there's, you know, the house with goats and it's like, oh, whoa, okay. Yeah, so they're, That's they're all weird. I mean, even if you look at Yellowstone, like the reason Yellowstone is a national park is because it's weird because nowhere else can you find like these giant hot springs or these geysers that are erupting and you know, everything else that's there. It's such a weird landscape. And that's what, but. Well, Riley, before we go, is there anything that you kind of want to tell everybody about national parks? I would reiterate my point from before that just keep visiting them, keep going to see them and tell your friends to go see them and tell your friends why they're important and tell them the stories that you gather when you go to these places and um, just keep fostering that that love for the little ones too. You know, we have these big iconic parks like Yosemite and Yellowstone, and they're obviously incredible places. But don't forget about all the Civil War battlefields or the Revolutionary War battlefields, even that are on the East Coast, or the little guys, the National Historic Sites, National Historical Parks that a lot of people don't even know are national parks. So do your research too. There's 419 national park service sites in the country and that you've been to more than you think well riley thank you so much for coming on it was a lot of fun and i learned a lot <laughs> absolutely anytime that's it that's the episode the seasonals are kelly mogg ryan dininger me joey ravinsky the theme song by ryan dininger joe williams lewis leva chappie thomas hamilton Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.